If you are a uh, fan or a frequenter of Christian news or blogs, articles, anything about sort of religion and society or faith and politics, anything like that, uh, certainly over the last year or so, you've probably read or seen something along the lines of it's becoming more and more difficult to be a follower of Jesus in a culture that seems almost daily to grow more hostile toward Christianity in general and Christ followers in particular. Those sorts of articles and, and um, creations, the media coming out, uh, is very prominent right now. And probably for good reason, because it certainly does seem that it is more difficult to be a follower of Jesus. It seems like almost daily new laws are coming out, new court cases, uh, new blasts in the media, all against what we would consider to be biblical Christianity and following the Lord. But this daily challenge of obedience to God in a culture that is certainly opposed to God is nothing new. If you're familiar with history in general, you'll know that from the beginning, followers of Jesus have struggled to follow him in cultures that were opposed to the things of God. Uh, even in the Old Testament, they imagine being a follower of Yahweh and every nation around you follows pagan gods. And so this challenge for daily obedience is certainly nothing new. And we see a great story about this in the Chronicle of Daniel. We see Daniel and his three friends struggling to follow Yahweh, struggling to follow God's commands in a pagan culture in which they are prisoners, a pagan culture that cares nothing for the things of God and will fight every step of the way. And we as Christians, I think, find ourselves in a similar position. Each and every day we face the decision to either, on the one hand, follow God's commands in faithful obedience, or on the other hand, uh, capitulate to the pressures of society, abandon our faith, abandon our, our principles and our convictions, and just sort of go along to get along. Those are really our challenges, our, our two decisions to make every day. And for those of us who say, I will follow God's commands regardless of the society around me, we run the risk of challenge and we run the risk of persecution, of pushback, as our culture moves from one that is more sort of Judeo-Christian, at least in theory, to one that is very openly anti that, uh, we run the risk of encountering those who would push back against our willingness and our desire to serve the Lord. And so we see in our text today this challenge to walk in obedience despite the consequences that might come. And what I want us to see today in our text is this main idea for us, is that faithful obedience to God's commands will be challenged, be persecuted, and ultimately rewarded. That's what I want us to see in our text today in Daniel chapter 3. So let me pray and ask the Lord to give us wisdom. Our Father in heaven, we are mindful that this text is your word. Your word is authoritative, it is perfect and inspired. It gives us wisdom, it shows us our sin, it points us to Christ. We ask that you would give us the humility to receive what you have for us today in your word. Give us wisdom to understand and receive, and give us a willingness to apply what you show us in your word. And may it be done for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, let's begin our time this morning in the text by seeing this first point that Faithful obedience to God's commands will be challenged. It'll be challenged. 
Our text begins here in Daniel chapter 3 with Nebuchadnezzar building this image. Verse 1 says, Nebuchadnezzar uh, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. Now, if you're a little bit rusty on your cubits, that's about 90 feet. Massive statue. And he sets it up on this plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, this act of Nebuchadnezzar building this statue might seem sort of odd, might seem sort of random. I mean, you just middle of nowhere, all right, let's build a statue. But it seems that he's doing something that parallels what we find in Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. The king is constructing this monument to his own kingdom, to his own glory. And if you remember from last week, the dream that he had about a statue with a gold head and then the rest of it was made out of different materials. And Daniel shows him that the head is your kingdom and all these other kingdoms will come after you. Well, it seems Nebuchadnezzar took that dream to heart. And it seems that he is determined to prove that dream wrong. And so he builds a statue entirely out of gold, puts it right in the middle of the place where the Tower of Babel would have been, in this act of defiance to say, you know what, no, 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 my kingdom will not end. There's nobody coming after me. There's nobody more powerful than me. Look at what I can do. Look at this statue and look what it represents. It's this sort of defiant shaking of the fist up toward God. Nobody's coming after me. My kingdom will certainly not end. And as if it wasn't enough to build the idol, he then gives this rule that everybody has to bow down and worship it. Look at verse 4. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of all these different instruments, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Oh, and by the way, if you don't worship, you're thrown in a fiery furnace. So he sets up this image to say, look at my glory, look at my kingdom, and just so you know who's in charge, uh, when you hear the music, make sure you bow down and worship. Make sure you don't forget. The reality is that faithful obedience to God's commands will inevitably be challenged. Imagine if you're the Israelites living in Babylon. The entire culture is opposed to God. And you're, you're daily faced with people around you who don't know Yahweh, they don't follow him, they certainly don't keep his commands inevitably your obedience will be challenged. This declaration requiring everyone to bow down may seem insignificant if you're a Babylonian, but if you're an Israelite, that's very important. And this contradicts specifically the second commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Of all the things Nebuchadnezzar could have done, this one strikes right at the core of what it means to be a follower of Yahweh. It goes right to the core and says, you know what, you, you want to worship your God, I want you to come and worship this statue that we've made. And so they hear this command, and they're challenged. Public challenges to faithful obedience, like what we see here in Daniel 3, uh, aren't just a thing of the past. Now, fair enough, we don't have a giant statue down on the river walk anywhere, and the mayor's not told us to everybody go down there and worship and bow down yet. Uh, It may come a day where something like that happens, but we do have a, a daily challenge to abandon our faith, to abandon our convictions, and to bow down, if you will, to the idols of our day. It's not a physical statue, not yet at least, 
But we are challenged, I think, in subtle ways to put God in second place. Nobody cares if you're a follower of Jesus. Nobody cares if you're a Christian, just as long as you keep that in check with everything else. Uh, sure, fine, be a Christian, you know, be whatever you want to be, but just remember when, when it's really important, that's sort of second place to what culture says is most important. It's okay to follow Jesus as long as he's in second place. We're challenged to bow to the idols of our day like wealth or success or influence, desire or pleasure, respect, admiration, uh, sexual immorality, anything goes. These are the idols of our day. We're told to sacrifice everything on the altar of personal success and enjoyment. The idols of our day, not necessarily a statue somewhere, but we are challenged, we are told uh, in subtle but crafty ways, make sure you come and bow down to these things because they're the idols of our day. We We face this challenge to remove Jesus from the throne of our hearts, so to speak, and in his place put all the things of the world. Sure, it's okay to keep him in there. Just remember who's really on the throne. Make sure you bow to the idols of our day. We cannot avoid the challenge to faithful obedience. The only question is, how do you respond? If you just say that, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus, then it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You're going to face these daily challenges. Some places it could be very well be a statue. Other places it's these idols that are more sneaky, more crafty the things that seek our attention. So the question is not how do we avoid them, the question is how do we respond to them. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here in Daniel chapter 3, the choice is very simple. I said, we we can't do it. We won't bow down. But I want us to stop for a moment in the text, and I want us just to get real practical. Rubber meets the road. Because there's a question that comes up in this passage, and it's often used, uh, this passage is often used in these discussions. And the question is very simple. At what point is it okay to disobey the government? Very practical. At what point is it okay to disobey the government? Because you think about, we know in Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 that governments are put in place by God, uh, that we are called to submit and to honor them. In fact, our submission to them is done in our submission to the Lord. We know those passages. And we think about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Prior to this point, what did they do? They worked for the government. They worked for the betterment of their community. They were fine citizens. They went to Walmart. They, they dropped the kids off in the to school line. All these things, these normal things, they went along with it until this command comes. And they say, sorry, we can't do that. But the question really becomes, at what point is it okay to say, look, I can't do this. I'm trying to submit to you as a, as a, as a leader trying to do my best, but I just can't do it anymore. What point do we do that? Well, I want to give you three principles. Uh, Not necessarily specifics. I'm not going to tell you exactly, but three principles I think that will help us guide our thinking a little bit on this. All right, I want to read this. That way I get it right. Number one, to the extent that earthly governments do not contradict biblical teaching, we should obey with humility and submission as to the Lord recognizing that uncomfortable and unpopular do not equate to unbiblical. Okay? If the government doesn't contradict biblical teaching, we ought to obey with humility and submission as to the Lord, remembering and recognizing that uncomfortable and unpopular don't equate to unbiblical. And I'll just let that one sit out there and you apply as, as you feel led. Secondly, 
The flip side of that, when earthly governments give commands that directly contradict biblical teaching, I think we should humbly refuse to follow them. But still honoring our leaders and submitting to their leadership as much as we can as to the Lord. So this passage is not licensed to go around looking for every opportunity just to stick it to the government. Yeah, I'm not doing what you want. I'm following the Lord. No, I think what we ought to do as Christians is seek out every opportunity to follow those in charge of us. Seek out every opportunity to submit to our rulers as to the Lord. And only when it comes to these moments where they directly contradict Scripture do we stand up and we say, with all due respect, I cannot follow you here because it conflicts with Scripture. And then thirdly, be charitable. Be charitable when talking to Christians about when to apply these principles. Be charitable when having disagreements because we're all seeking to navigate this thing called life. We're all seeking to apply the Scriptures as best we can in a way that honors the Lord, a way that honors our government. So be charitable as we have these discussions. When faced with a situation in which they were commanded by the government to do something directly contrary to Scripture, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego determined to follow God's commands instead of the king's commands. And of course, naturally, you can imagine for a king, he was furious. He was angry. Verses 13 through 16, they give us this account. He he says, get them in here. I want to hear it from them. Hey, guys, is it true that you won't bow down to me? Notice their response, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, meaning if you really will throw us in the fire, uh, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Okay? Notice it wasn't a picket line. It wasn't a riot or a loot. It was simply, King, we, we will not follow. We will not follow. These three men are prepared to face the consequences of their faithful obedience to God, even death in a fiery furnace, which is probably on my top ten list of the ways I don't want to go. And they say, we'll do it. And there's a, there's, in this verse 18 is something that is amazing to me. Did you catch that for them? They say, look, we know God can rescue us. We're confident he will. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to obey. Did you catch that? It's amazing to me that for them, whether God delivers them from death is irrelevant. It's incredible. Whether they live or die for these three men, completely unrelated to the fact that they're going to obey the God's commands. So it's not, hey, we're going to obey because we're fairly confident it's going to end well. If it looks like things are going south, we're going to switch. No, it's whether you throw us in the fire or not, whether God rescues us from the fire or not, we will obey God's commands. And there's a principle here for us that the decision to obey God does not depend on the situation or the outcome. The decision to obey God or the, 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 to obey God does not depend on the situation or the outcome. We don't practice situational obedience. Meaning, I'll obey when it's easy, convenient, worthwhile, and we don't do it depending on the, the outcome. We don't say, well, I'll obey God as long as I'm confident that the end will be okay. No, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, look, whether he rescues us or not, we will not bow down. Because our obedience to God is not dependent on this situation or any other. It's not dependent on, upon the outcome of this situation or any other. We will not bow because we will obey the Lord. 
Each of us face these daily challenges to bow down to the idols. Each of us face this challenge every day to go along to get along. We find ourselves on the wrong side of history. You've heard that one? And increasingly, it's difficult. How can we know that we'll be able to stand firm and not yield? How can we know that when times get even worse, how can we know that we won't bow down? How can we know that we won't fail in the moment? Well, ultimately, we don't rely on our own strength. Ultimately, we rely on God's grace. How do I know that when times come to this moment, how do I know that I'll stand? I'm confident that God will give me grace. I'm confident that he will sustain me. He will provide it each day that we need it. One author I was reading was talking about grace that we need every day, and he was thinking back to when God would provide manna in the Old Testament. Remember, he would, he would have the manna come down every day. He told the people, go out and get what you need for the day, but he said, don't keep it overnight. And if you keep it overnight, what's it happens? It rots. The idea was, he's teaching them, I will provide every day what you need. Don't store up and, and become a prepper, uh, excuse me, become a prepper and think that you can take it into your own hands. No, no, no. He says, I'll give you every day what you need. And applying that to grace, one author says it this way. He says, like manna, grace is not something that can be stored up for later use. Each day receives its own supply. I love that. So it's not a matter of, boy, I'm thinking through all the terrible things that could come one day, so I better start kind of storing up the grace I'm going to need. No. Whatever happens today, God will give you sufficient grace. And then whatever happens tomorrow new grace and just as sufficient and whatever happens the next day new grace just as sufficient what we need for that day will be given to us by our lord who will strengthen us in the face of challenge some of you may be familiar with annie johnson flint uh, late 1800s early 1900s poet whose uh, many of her poems were turned into hymns a woman who was more acquainted with affliction than i think most Uh, emotional and physical, losing both uh, her parents as a child, uh, racked by debilitating arthritis her entire life, bedridden most of her life, constant pain, cancer. I I mean, just unimaginable pain and heartache. And yet she was able to pen this poem that begins like this. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. Whatever we face, whatever the challenge may be, God gives sufficient grace right then and there for what we need. He giveth more grace as the burdens grow greater. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they determined to follow God's commands uh, instead of the king's commands to their own demise. And likewise, we will be challenged daily to forsake obedience to God and to capitulate to the norms and the morals of our day. And should we refuse to yield to those little g-gods of our day, we too will face the consequences. So I want us to see in verses 19 through 27, secondly this morning, faithful obedience will be persecuted. Faithful obedience will be persecuted. When these three men wouldn't bow to the idol, they faced the immediate wrath of the king. I want to read verses 19 through 23 again. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. 
probably he was seven times angrier than he normally is. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind them, to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took them up. And these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. We can count on the fact that faithful obedience to God's commands will be persecuted. It's inevitable. In Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, Paul is on his missionary journey. He goes and he preaches and he comes back through all the towns encouraging the disciples And Luke records for us that he was encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul didn't sell a message of easy believism. He said it's only through many tribulations that you'll enter the kingdom of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chose to follow God's commands even when they conflicted with the king's commands. And as a result, they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And the story ends. No, it doesn't end there. We would expect it to end there. But just imagine being the king. All right, these furnaces often were these giant things, and they would have at the top of it an opening where the people would be thrown in. And then down at the bottom on the sort of ground level would be this giant window. And so the king could sit over here and, and just sort of enjoy seeing his enemies suffer. And so the king is sitting there, and he's watching, and he, and he kind of does one of these. You know, like, oh, I got something on my glasses. I'm looking. And he, and he asks his friends, he says, hey, did we put three guys in there? And they look around and they say, yes, king. Look at verse 24. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Can you imagine? He's sitting there and he thinks, okay, I'm fairly confident we threw three guys in there. Guys, back me up on this. Three guys, okay. Yet I see four, they're all walking around, they're not being burned, and their ropes somehow came loose. I mean, just imagine. I was thinking about the yesterday, one of the things I want to ask these three guys in heaven is, what were you doing in there? Because he says they were walking around. I'm just curious what they were doing. Likely, probably saying, what in the world is going on? Here we are in this fire not being burned, and of course that's what King Nebuchadnezzar sees. They're not hurt. They're walking around. And perhaps the strangest of all is he says there's actually four in there. So that's the question. Who is this fourth individual in the burning furnace? Uh, Some have said that it was an angel uh, sent by God to protect his people. Others have said, no, this this is actually Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, before the incarnation. We call this a pre-incarnate Christ or a a Christophany. Uh, We call it that. And I think there's room for disagreement here. I wouldn't want to be too dogmatic, but I think we can say that this person, this, this fourth individual in the burning fiery furnace is actually the Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity right there in the middle of the fire, in the middle of the flames with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it certainly brings new meaning to the word Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's God with us even in the midst of the flames. The the encouragement for us is not that if we follow Jesus, he'll just protect us from all the sufferings and that he'll just sort of guide us around all the potholes and around all the terrible moments in life. 
No, the encouragement is that if we follow him, we can count on him to be with us in the middle of all of it. He is with us in our trials. He's with us in our suffering. And as we think about the broader context of redemptive history, we can say that Jesus is even with us in our greatest need, which is forgiveness of our sin. He's right there with us. You read in the New Testament, the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. He bore our sins on the cross, and he accomplished our salvation. He is truly God with us. Jesus has conquered sin and death on our behalf, and now he goes with us through every trial that would come our way. That's why the psalmist would write in Psalm 23. I'm sure you know it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Yeah. It's not, I'll fear no evil because I brought all the supplies I need. I will fear no evil because I can see the light at the end of the tunnel and I'm almost there. No. I will fear no evil because you're with me. Our encouragement as we face challenges and even persecution is not that we'll just somehow get out of it. Our encouragement is that God is with us right in the midst of it. He carries us through it. I will fear no evil for you are with me. We've seen in our text this morning so far that obedience to God's commands will certainly be challenged, no way around it, certainly be persecuted to one degree or another. And finally, this morning, I want us to see that faithful obedience will be rewarded. Look at verse 28. Let's read these together. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. When the king realizes that these three men have managed to survive this unscathed, he's really left with no other option than just to acknowledge the greatness of the God of Israel. He's forced to confess the greatness of their God. And in addition, he rewards them. Verse 30, he promotes them. He says, you guys have, have remained steadfast. You wouldn't bow. Your God is great. And he rewards them and promotes them in the kingdom. Now, I know that some of you are probably sitting there thinking, hold up. I've read the Old Testament. I've read the New Testament. And I've Googled a few things about church history. And I'm pretty sure that several, if not most, followers of God, followers of Christ throughout the ages, have served faithfully. And yet, for many of them, it did not end well. And they were certainly not rewarded. And here you are with your third sermon point saying faithful obedience will be rewarded. Yes. And here's what I mean. Faithful obedience might be rewarded in this life, but it will certainly be rewarded in the next life. God chooses in his own wisdom and in his own plan to bring about different outcomes in our lives. Some people, like Daniel and his three friends, are rewarded in this life. You think about the story of Joseph, went through all these terrible things, and yet God ultimately brings him to, you know, prime minister of Egypt. So God chooses in his own wisdom sometimes to bring about earthly reward, um, raising people up despite their suffering. But sometimes he chooses not to. It might be our will that after suffering we get something better on the other end. Maybe it's not one of the problems with the some of the prosperity gospel teaching 
is that well, you're going through tough times, well, just hold on. God's got something better for you. Well, yeah, but maybe not on this planet. Certainly he has something better for you, but it might not be in this life. But I know with confidence that he has something better for us. We can be absolutely confident that obedience to God's commands will be rewarded in the next life. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 is talking about suffering at the end, and he says they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. If we obey the Lord's commands and we don't capitulate to the world's expectations, we will suffer persecution. No way around it. We might even suffer to the point of death. But Jesus says if you endure to the end, don't fall away, don't give up, don't abandon. If you endure to the end, our great hope is that we will receive the salvation that God has promised. That's why I say that faithful obedience will be rewarded. Does that mean if I'm having a rough time right now, then a promotion's coming down the road? Maybe. Maybe the Lord would choose to do that, but not necessarily. But it does mean that as I suffer for my faith, as I seek to obey, and even to the point of giving my life, I can expect a great reward when I see Jesus. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 8, says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, sounds great, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's no way around suffering. But the beauty of Scripture is that we see this hope and this promise that if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. If you're going to suffer, suffer with Jesus. This is our hope in the face of challenge and persecution, that faithful obedience will be rewarded if we endure to the end. If it costs us everything to follow Jesus, if it costs us our family, our livelihoods, our wealth and our income, our position, our families, I already said that, even our lives, it's worth it because we have this great reward. We have this reward in heaven. Nothing could, nothing could compare to the beauty of the gospel. Nothing could compare to the fact that we get Jesus. I remember Wes preaching a few weeks ago on what is the gospel we did at the beginning of Romans and the takeaway was God is the gospel. The gospel isn't just like I do these things and I get something else. No, the gospel is you get God. And so whatever you give up in this life, you ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, hey, would it have been worth it to die in the furnace? They say, absolutely. Yeah, sure, we lose our lives, we lose our, you know, we don't see our families, but we get Jesus. And the same goes for us. We may face terrible times of persecution, even giving our lives. And mind you, many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world do that every day. They're dying every day for their faith in Christ. But the reality is we have something much better. No matter what we might give up in this life, Jesus is better. Our heavenly reward is far better. The truth is that following Jesus is no easy task. I think we could probably all say amen to that. Following Jesus is no easy task. It's wonderful. We love him, but it's not always easy. Jesus even told his first disciples that they would be persecuted, imprisoned, and killed simply for naming the name of Jesus. And things have not improved or changed some 2,000 years later. 
faithful obedience to God's commands is going to be challenged and is challenged daily. Like I said, there's not an idol or a statue outside that we have to go bow down to. But our culture is telling us to worship. Every day it's telling us to worship. And it's not the Lord. Faithful obedience will also be persecuted and is being persecuted around the world. And I would say increasingly here in the West. For far too long, we in the West have talked about persecution as something that just happens over there somewhere in these third world countries. Persecution is coming home. And we need to be ready. We need to be ready to, to suffer for the Lord. Our great hope is not that we will somehow manage to sort of keep sheltering from it. That if we just hold out and, and hunker down, persecution will stay out there. No, our great hope is that if we are obedient, we will be rewarded. Not necessarily in this life, probably not in this life, but absolutely in the next one. If we endure to the end, we will receive our great reward. We might give up everything. The last thing we see on this earth could be flames. But the next thing you see is Jesus. That's far better than the suffering. Far better than anything we might lose. I want to leave you with a question this morning just to ask you to be honest with you. No show of hands. Uh, Are you worried that you might not endure? Are you worried that things are going to get more difficult and you're not sure if you'll make it? Are you worried that there's going to come a day when you're faced with this situation and you're worried that you might just give in? I want to encourage you to remember that God, His will is to provide daily grace when it's needed. If you're worried if you're going to make it, I'm going to point you to Jesus. If you're worried, well, I'm not sure if when time comes, I mean, it's hard enough right now, I just don't know if I'm going to make it. I want to say you will make it. Not because of your own strength, not because you're just going to buckle down and do it, but because God's grace is sufficient. He will provide daily the grace that we need to follow him in this society, in this culture that is seemingly overnight sometimes, becoming more and more opposed to the things of God. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. This is how it continues. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy load will upbear. She ends this way. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we ask today that you would strengthen us with sufficient grace to stand firm and not to bow to the idols of our day. We know that often these idols, they're not built out on the roads, they're built in our hearts. Our hearts are home often to thoughts and desires and feelings and uh, pursuits that don't honor you. And they are things that ultimately can displace you from the throne of our hearts. We can find ourselves bowing to things of this world in the way that we spend our money or the way that we spend our time or our resources. 
We ask for faith. We ask for strength to stand up and to be obedient to you, even when it costs us everything, because we want to honor you. And when times get tough and we think we may fail, we lean on your grace. And should it take us laying down our lives in this world, remind us anew every day, we, this world is not our home, and we look forward to Jesus, to our earthly, our heavenly home. Strengthen us this day for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.